This is Prayer Amid Pandemic, a podcast to encourage and sharpen the church through telling stories of Christians whose faith were shaped by sickness and by praying with fellow believers around the world. I'm Morgan Lee. Perpetua was a noblewoman from Carthage with a guaranteed life of comfort ahead of her. Born in the late 100s, she lived with her husband, her son, and her slave. Then she converted to Christianity, a decision that changed everything. She's experienced so much loss, probably more than we're aware of, and yet she doesn't lose hope. She genuinely believes that God is the God of redemption and that God triumphs over suffering. Megan DeVore is Associate Professor of Church History and Early Christian Studies at Colorado Christian University. She studied patristic to medieval historical theology and has a background in classics. Perpetua, as you mentioned, was from an extremely elite, well-connected family, it seems, in Carthage. Now, Carthage is a really Romanized city on the north coast of Africa, almost directly south of Rome. It's the second largest city in the empire, a really diverse metropolitan landscape. Perpetua had a lot going for her. As diverse as Carthage was, as economically prosperous, it had a really large and dynamic Christian community, at least insofar as we can tell. We can't really picture 12 people just hiding, huddled around a living room anymore. That would be like talking as though Abraham Lincoln is still the president. Instead, time has passed. By the time Perpetua lives in the late second century, it's estimated that there are thousands of Christians of every economic level, from slave to extraordinary wealthy owners of villas. So we're dealing with a diverse city, a city with a lot of opportunity, but also a lot of Christians. What do we know about how Perpetua first encountered Christianity? Very, very little. By the summer of 197, so about five years before Perpetua and friends are killed, there's a series that we see beginning of sporadic, really targeted local persecutions that begin to rock the churches of Carthage. We don't know why. We think maybe it was a zealous local official trying to get in the good graces of a new emperor, or maybe Christians were being used as scapegoats for a local problem. Whatever the extent of arrests, trials, and martyrdoms over those five years, it's really likely Perpetua would have been aware of it. Perhaps that's what brought her to the faith. Contemporary Christian author in the same city as Perpetua wrote famously, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, public martyrdoms seem to be creating more Christians. So Perpetua may have come to faith this way. Another possibility I find intriguing is that Carthage had a lot of women's intellectual circles, a little bit like philosophical book clubs. And Perpetua is evidently very learned. Perhaps she was evangelized by a teacher or peer in one of those settings. Or maybe like Augustine in the exact same city a few centuries later, she was brought to faith by her mother, who was also a Christian. Less people think this is just a podcast where we're nerding out on the early church for the sake of it. We do want to just talk about disease, plagues, and sickness. Do we have a sense of the extent to which there were plagues that she experienced over the course of her lifetime? Yes. Perpetua lived actually between two pandemics. One was the Antonine Plague. It ended about the year she was born. So she would have grown up in the shadow of this plague. It seems to have been something like smallpox, but it would have affected Carthage pretty severely. And then there was another plague about 50 years after she died, 
now called the Plague of Cyprian, which may have been more viral, we're not sure, but it wrecked the Roman economy and led to over 40 years of political chaos. So Perpetua is between these plagues, but even though she didn't live through a pandemic, as we would call it, I think we have to remember the fragility of life during her own era. About one third of Roman children did not have a living biological father. A great many women died in childbirth. We hear in so many authors during her period heartbreaking stories of tumors that spread or broken bone complications that lead to death. Life was so obviously fragile then in a way that so rarely we have to come face to face with. What do we know about the way that illness did personally shape Perpetua's life. I really liked what you brought up at the beginning about the plague, right? Like it's interesting to think (laughs) even right now about children who are being born during this pandemic, right? You know, to what extent did Perpetua have a personal relationship with illness? We know of one significant experience, at least the illness and loss of a family member. In the midst of this account, immediately after this official trial where Perpetua and the small group of Christians she's arrested with are condemned to public death in a local amphitheater, the group returns to prison and they begin to pray. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, Perpetua cries out, Dinocrates. She writes, I was stunned and grieved. And she explains here, Dinocrates was my biological brother who died horrifically from cancer in his face when he was seven years old. This is striking to her as well as her readers. She's in prison. She's undergone a dramatic trial. And in the midst of prayer, the vivid memory of her brother's suffering just stuns her. She'll later recall even how gruesome his face appeared in the midst of his cancer. We don't know how old she was when the trauma of his death occurred, or really how much older it probably made her, as those who have lost siblings in childhood know very well. But she relays this in the midst of prayer. And interestingly, it spurs her on to more prayer. This causes me to pause every time I read it. She survived so many traumas in her two decades of life, very likely the death of her husband as well. And yet throughout the account about her, she's constantly looking to God with expectation. The reasons why I'm so captivated by her commemorative story. There's a lot of hope. Do we have a sense of what exactly made her faith so strong? Was there a particular promise of God that she clung to or theological element that shows up in her writing that, you know, gives us a larger sense of the foundation for this? I imagine she would answer in a way that we might there's probably a thousand intermingled things. From her account, we gather that she had great mentors. Her disciple, Saturis, who's named in the text, constantly encouraging her and reminds her of what is true. It's obvious in her account that Perpetua knows the scriptures very well and has a devotion to prayer, and she encourages others consistently. She also has a penchant for sharing the gospel, even with uh, prison guards who were not known to be nice people in the Roman era. Spiritual grit, I think as we know, tends to mature in suffering. And so I think it's important to ultimately acknowledge that her faithfulness is probably due to many things. Indeed, she has a trust in resurrection, hope in Christ, but faithfulness is really named among the fruits of the Spirit. I think it's a gift of the Spirit grown only in relationship with the triune God. I think we see that in Perpetua really strongly. What do you think the church could learn from Perpetua during this time? Perpetua's narrative really captivates me. She complains 
of the prison heat and of hunger. She's depicted as trembling on her way to her death. What we have in this account is someone who's human. She's not a lifeless mythical ideal that we can only admire from afar. But as a human, she knows the scripture. She keeps a wider prayerful perspective in the face of tragedies and loss. She allows hope and truth to triumph over cynicism or the temptation just to seek worldly stability. In the midst of being tortured, she takes a moment to tell other Christians, do not lose heart. And that resonates with me. In the midst of whatever suffering we go through, may we not lose heart. May we continue to pray. May we continue to be wise in our perspective of what really matters and what our identity is. Perpetua so often repeats in her narrative, I am a Christian. That's a lot we can learn. For people who are not super familiar with Perpetua's life, we should talk briefly about how she ends up dying. Would you be willing to share that with us? We have this beautiful and intriguing account that was clearly meant to be read aloud in a church setting. It seems to have been written from an eyewitness who not only knew of Perpetua's background, but received some of her writings from prison during her arrest before her death, and then wraps up this martyrdom account with a description of what happens in this public amphitheater in the city of Carthage. Conclusion of this account, where we have the description of the death of this small group of martyrs, um, we find that Perpetua, and who seems to be her slave, though it's not entirely clear, either a slave or her slave, named Felicity. They're separated as the women in the group and are publicly tortured, being gored to death by wild animals. At least that was the intent. Perpetua and Felicity survive the goring. The wild animal is recalled. And that's at the moment when Perpetua encourages her fellow Christians. So in the midst of being very publicly humiliated and wounded. After this, she and Felicity are kind of set aside. Other martyrs are brought out and publicly tortured. Some die, some live through the torture. And then because of Perpetua's elite status, she is brought to the center of the arena and beheaded. Only the elite were given this supposed honor instead of further torture. But it's said that she cries out when the gladiator's sword hits her neck. And so we see suffering and yet strength up until the very end. Is there any other part from her life that deals with sickness, illness, or pain that you would want to bring to our listeners' attention before we wrap this conversation? She is a young mother. She's 22 years old. She never mentions her husband, which leads us to believe that he's likely dead, although we're not sure he may have renounced her for her faith. But she has a young child. We don't know exactly how old. He's described as an infant, anywhere between infant as we would know it, and two years old. He's even still nursing. And Perpetua experiences both the pain of separation from him as he's taken from prison briefly. She describes her physical pain in not being able to nurse him. At the end of the day when her child is eventually given to her mother to raise, Perpetua speaks again not only of, of suffering in prison, the suffering of the loss of her child, but it's interesting that she ends every suffering note with hope. She's relieved from pain when her child is eventually given to her mother. She seems to take comfort in knowing that he'll be raised well. So again, we see that really intriguing and hopeful combination, acknowledging pain, but acknowledging 
hope because of Christ. Megan, this is really moving. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. Thank you. I'm always happy to talk about Perpetua. Here's the latest coronavirus news in the world and church for the week of June 15th. The most popular worship song during the pandemic is It Is Well, according to church technology company Faithlife. Rounding out the top five are Great Is Thy Faithfulness, No Longer Slaves, Raise a Hallelujah, and See a Victory. President of the National Council of Evangelicals in France, Christian Blanc, recently shared his experience of contracting COVID-19 with the publication La Vie and reported in English by Evangelical Focus. I had nothing left to cling on to but God. I just thought of him like my heavenly father who was there and who could decide my fate. And his word carried me throughout my stay in the hospital, Blanc said. He continued, Now I could embody all the truths about God, the hope and the trust that I had often preached to others. Truths that I could only conceive intellectually before, having studied the biblical text. International adoption has been declining for years. As Christianity Today recently reported last year, fewer than 3,000 U.S. families adopted a child from another country, the lowest in 50 years, according to U.S. State Department data. In contrast, in 2018, it was 4,000. And at its peak in 2004, 22,000. But an increase in bureaucratic requirements, a COVID-19-driven shutdown in government offices where families process this paperwork, and pandemic-related travel restrictions are threatening to drive down this number even further. To read the rest of the story and for more coverage on how the church is responding to coronavirus, please visit the link in our show notes. Because of the global nature of this crisis, we believe it's important to hear from our sisters and brothers in Christ from around the world. Konstantin Mitsikov, I'm the pastor at Moscow Bible Church here in Moscow, Russia. Let us pray. Lord, I pray right now that you would send your peace, you would send your shalom to the city of Moscow with economic prosperity in the midst of very trying times, that you would send a social prosperity to the city, that you would teach us by the power of your spirit how to take care of one another. But more than anything else, Lord, I pray that you would use these challenges that we're facing right now and turn them into incredible opportunities for spiritual harvest that we have not seen yet. Lord, I pray that you would unite churches, you would unite brothers and sisters in this city in love for one another, because you say that we, the world would know that we are your disciples by, by the way we love one another. And Lord, I pray that you would awaken the hearts of those that do not know what to put their trust in, what to hope in, when their world crumbles and their ideas crumble and their understanding of the world crumbles, that right now you would show them that you are the rock that you stand forever and ever, that you would awaken their hearts by the power of your spirit. You would turn them. You would embrace them. You would give them the courage and you would give them the will to submit to you and to embrace you as your Lord and Savior, and that we would see the harvest like we have not seen. I pray about that. We pray about that in the power of your name, in in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Prayer Amid Pandemic is produced by myself, Morgan Lee, along with Matt Linder, Mike Cosper, and Eric Petrick. Music is by Urban Nerd Beats, Prod Ritterman, and Oliver Duvel. Prayer Amid Pandemic is available wherever you get your podcasts. Please help us spread the word about the show by sharing about it on social media or recommending it to your friends. The best way for you to help is by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts. As a reminder, if you'd like to support this show and our ministry, you can do so by subscribing to Christianity Today at orderct.com slash podcast. If you have feedback, please send us an email at podcast at christianitytoday.com or on Twitter at CT Podcast. We'll see you soon.